not many people actually know this, but I'd actually, I was a day away from signing a contract with a Brazilian rugby union to go and, uh, and lead their, uh, sorry, be the assistant coach and, and lead their program in to the, uh, to the Olympics, obviously in Rio, uh, within the Argentinian at the time. And, uh, but they, they put it off, put it off like about two and a half, three months it took to actually get the final paperwork. The day before we got the paperwork, Nigel Melville actually running it. Uh, and six weeks later, we were in the States, so. I'm Chris Brown and welcome to the Rugby Hive. Today's guest is Chris Brown, winner of the Cap Gemini Coach of the Series Award in 2019 for his role with the USA Women's Eagles, taking them to a silver medal finish, their best ever result in history. Brown started on the 7 Series years back with Mike Friday taking charge of Kenya, elevating the Africans to the best ever finish on the Series in 2009, placing number 6 on the planet. Brown then moved to America with Friday, spending four years with the USA men's program, turning them around in dramatic fashion from 13th in the world to 6th in 2018. It was fitting that Mike Friday stood alongside Chris Brown, accepting the Coach of the Series award in 2019, with the men's USA Eagles placing second on the series, playing in all 10 semi-finals that season. In this episode, we look back at Brown's upbringing that saw him drop out of high school to play for the All Blacks. We track his amazing journey to South Africa, Kenya, and eventually the US of A. We talk about the coaching insights in developing world-class programs, how Friday and him took the USA men to their first ever tournament win in the series, and how USA women finished on the podium. With an extra year ahead of the Olympic Games, what can they do in Japan? Here is episode 12 with legend Chris Brown. He's so dangerous, Freddy Krueger has nightmares about him! Hello and welcome to the Rugby Hive. I'm Darren Stanford and despite my South African accent, I was fortunate enough to play rugby for the United States on the Sevens World Series. And I'm Robin McDowell, a former Canadian Sevens International. Back in my playing days, I went head-to-head against Dallin in the USA. For several years, Robin has coached International Sevens for various countries, including Canada and Mexico. He's massively passionate about growing the game across the Americas through his McDowell rugby programs at all levels. I'm currently a commentator for World Rugby, most recently broadcasting the Rugby World Cup in Japan, as well as the amazing Sevens World Series. More than a decade later, we are teaming up to bring you insights from legendary players and coaches from around the world. All legends have a story. The Rugby Hive podcast is here to share it. Welcome to the Hive. Oh, it's more dangerous than climate change. Hello and welcome to episode 12. This time we return to North America and we chat with the USA Women's Sevens head coach, Chris Brown. He was selected as the Cap Gemini Sevens coach of the series in 2019. He's USA side. The Eagles finished sixth in 2016 and 2017. They took fifth in 2018. But the dedication, the commitment, the chemistry, the flair, all paid off in 2019. Second place finish on the series, just behind New Zealand on the podium. Ten points of difference. And uh, that was absolutely remarkable what Brownie's done for the program. He's also worked with the men's side with Mike Friday a few years back. A very humble human, kind, caring, always looking to get the best out of his squad. One of the coaches you kind of want to play for, eh, Robin? Yeah, I, I enjoyed getting, gaining his insights. And he talks about his successes both with the USA men when he was working with Friday. And he had, an, he had a lot of success coming off the back of uh, Richie Walker's uh, run with the 2018 World Cup. Obviously, they had a big year and they finished second. I think they finished fifth uh, this last year. And he's still building. He's just in his first year or so, year or two already. So uh, he was just very humble. Both, you know, the highs and the lows, which we all, we all experience in international sport or even local sport. What I really, really enjoyed, though, was his, his growth mindset for himself and for his program. And things that, I, that really aligned with me is just simplicity and clarity. He wants to know what he wants his athletes to know that he's behind them 
and they have a simple plan and we're going to play to our strengths and stick to it. So, and then he's got mentors around the world as well. So he talks about just uh, connecting with some of the super rugby colleagues of his back in New Zealand, where he's from. And just saying that, yeah, you know, you have highs, you have lows, but it's it's those lows uh, that, that make you stronger. So he's got a longer term picture for that program. The athletes that are pouring into that USA uh, Eagles women's side is is just frightening. So uh, looking forward to watching them develop when the world gets rolling. Can't wait for Olympics 2021. And then Robin, you didn't come here for a haircut, my friend. So much rugby happening north of the border with you. Yeah, it's been really great uh, helping out locally, just building programs. And I've got some exciting announcements in the next few months but uh, excited to get back on the field with uh, the national women's side today and it's been since March since I've been down at the national training center so looking forward to seeing all those uh, smiley faces how about on your side it's wonderful to hear can't can't wait to see it return properly yeah my side we uh, took a weekend away very and I went to New Hampshire spent a few days there in in the woods uh, the beautiful lake house it's such a stunning part of the world the leaves change starting to change colors magnificent sights New Hampshire though the motto live free or die so probably one of the more famous ones as you uh, see that don't mess around on that side. Uh, Rugby-wise, it's been a, a busy f- couple of weeks, I'd say. HSBC World Rugby 7 Series Awards this week for 2020. I was fortunate enough to be on the selection panel with uh, the commentators, uh, legends that we've interviewed for this podcast like Carl Tanana and the rest of the gang and a handful of former players. So congrats to the firstly the men's side. There's Scott Curry, Tavita Verandamu, JC Pretorius, Selvin Davids, Napolini Balatha, uh, Amanasi Tuamamba and Jordan Conroy. And then on the women's side, we had three players represented here from North America. We had Ghislaine Landry, Brittany Benn, and Christy Kershey. And then from Australia, Shawnee Williams and New Zealand carved it up with Tyler Nathan Wong, Ruby Tui, and Stacey Flula. And so congratulations to all those players. Yeah, it's, it's just good to see both Canada and USA represented. And it's, it's just showing, you know, that we're in that, in that top few nations in, in World Sevens. And so for young Canadian girls out there and young American girls across the country, sky's the limit. And I also heard that uh, you've been voted by the fans as the best commentator in the world. So congratulations. <laughs> or by me and your mom. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'll take those two votes to the bank, my friend. Uh, let's see. Other, other rugby news. We had the British Lions. Their rugby tickets via the ballot closed this past week. I know a lot of folks are talking about going to Africa in 2021 in July to watch that famous gathering against the Springboks, the current world champions who have, haven't had played much rugby recently. And then close to home here in the U.S., Rugby Town USA, news out of them, the former Colorado Raptors side in Major League Rugby. They're now a high-performance training center for women's and men's USA Eagles. They announced also a very interesting program they're going to be taking part called the Crossover Academy, taking in sporting sensations from other codes. This will be very interesting because everybody knows the talent, the level of athlete here in America, and a lot of folks you know, don't stay with their preferred sport due to not be able to land professional contracts. So it'll be interesting. Think about Colin Isles, think about players like that that transferred from another sport to rugby and how good they were, particularly in sevens. So you better watch out that side, my friend. It's all happening here. Let's shine the spotlight on North American coaches. So we've got four coaches I want to highlight here uh, today from uh, four different regions of Canada. I'll be doing a few more uh, after that as well. But first up, Sarah Shaw from Ontario, recent grad from uh, Brock University and uh, is already transitioning into being a successful coach. The girls during COVID, like she's just like doing as much research, watching game film and uh, picking as many people's brains as possible. So she's one to look out for. The infamous Brett Canterberg from Lumsden, Saskatchewan, who's the, the head coach and, and program manager of MacDool Rugby. That guy's a school teacher there and he just grinds every day too. So he's running a, he's running a tighter 
leadership than me, Dal. On Vancouver Island here in British Columbia, we have Sherry Spence. Uh, she wears every single hat in the Couch and Valley. And uh, there's close to 300 kids and about 150 of them are, are young girls. And, and Sherry's uh, to credit for a lot of that. And then uh, going back to Ontario is Kevin Verkus, coaching with some junior Canada. And, and uh, unfortunately, he... He suffered a bad knee injury a couple of years ago, and he's been working with Tyler Leggett uh, with Upright Rugby, traveling around to different different tournaments, and he'll probably be at Rugby Town 7's 2021 coach. And so he's a guy to look out for too. So to all those coaches out there across Canada and the U.S., just want to say thank you because uh, sports across both countries at the, at the youth level and developing level is, is selfless, and uh, it's a volunteer job. So thank you again. A couple of thank yous on this side as well, Robin. My um, good friend Jeremy Castro, I've told you about from the Oxy Old Boys rugby playing day, in California this past weekend he was involved in another wonderful cause through his company Brand Marinated they donated 900 boxes of fresh produce and food to folks in need in his area and that's just wonderful to see you know the rugby community coming together personally I got a chance to actually go to my first training session during COVID the Mystic Rugby, rugby Club in Boston I got to see the training I didn't actually attend the training session but I was there watching with a good friend of mine Bazzi Rosinski Maccabee a rugby legend his son Rudy and I played together in Israel in 2013 he was out there stepping a few parked cars and showing them how it's done i was definitely itching to get to get the boots on but obviously i need to find them first so word on the street is we finally have some exciting news in regards to the mlr in 2021 yeah, Robin, huge news. In fact, uh, it was kind of curious on social media. They uh, released something big news tomorrow with the eyes pointing out and you're like, okay, what is what is happening? You know, So they finally released. They're going to be kicking off in 2021 in March. I thought that they might push it back to April. Uh, that was the talk initially, but they're going, going for March, which is phenomenal. 18 weeks of regular season matches. There's an East Coast Conference and a West Coast Conference. And then they'll be playing uh, various playoffs to see your number one East Coast seed. Your Eastern champion, if you will, will play your Western champion on August 1st. So that is huge news. And, uh, you know, there's been a real growth in the game. Of course, there, there are 13 teams playing right now and they're going to be matches televised on CBS Sports Network and Fox Sports 2. And so it's going to be a busy season traveling around. And, and logistically, obviously, we hope they got everything in place, which we know due to COVID. It's going to be fantastic, though, for the fans. They haven't got to see rugby for a long time. And, of course, the league ended after a few weeks in, in this year in 2020. So this is going to be an absolute humdinger, my friend. Yeah, it's exciting for, for the league. I'll say that because, you know, for all those those great investors and, and everybody that's put in the infrastructure and sponsors and supports, we need to get it to go live so it can, so it can thrive. But also to all those new recruits, either the big names or some of these draft picks from the draft a few months ago, nothing more exciting than getting your first pro contract and then not getting to play so uh, at least they got something to look forward to and 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 a little motivation to, to to put in the work in the next uh in the next four or five months exactly and i'll quickly run through the teams for those those uh, interested the east coast you got rugby atl that's in atlanta georgia in boston you have the new england free jacks new orleans you got nola gold washington dc you got old glory you got rooney in new york Rugby United New York, and then the Toronto Arrows, of course, the one Canadian side. They make up the six teams on the East Coast. The West Coast has seven teams. Uh, we have the in Texas three sides, actually. The Houston Sabercats, the new team, the Dallas Jackals, the Austin Giltinis are there. And then in Los Angeles, a lot the LA Giltinis. In fact, the Gilgronies were the team in Austin. Sorry, I get my drinks mixed up. Uh, very confusing, the Australian owners on that side. And then, of course, the champion Seattle Seawolves are the, uh, one of the top sides in that league, as well as the San Diego Legion, unbeaten in 2020 with huge names signed to their side. The Utah Warriors are the seventh team that make that up. So East Coast versus West Coast, put you on the spot here, Robin. 2021, what are you thinking? 
I'm going to have to go with whatever Verity says because, and, and I believe it'll probably be something ending in teeny. So uh, outside of the Toronto Arrows, I was, uh, I was a big Seawolves fan, but uh, Philly Max no longer there. But uh, yeah, I'll support, I'll, I'm going to support all the teams at this point, but uh, Bill Webb out in, uh, out in Toronto will probably have my hide if I don't, uh, won't wave the flag up north. So we're waiting for a West Coast uh, MLR team and uh, hopefully that's on the horizon in the next few years we can get behind here on the coast. Well, over here, it's uh, National Coaches Week across Canada, and, and I, I typically highlight a lot of my coaches and a lot of the, the, you know, the more, more known coaches across the country, and uh, I've captured most of them over the last two years, and I have a real focus on developing coaches and setting them up for success and, and using my resources to, to give them the tools to develop. You'll hear it first on Verity Explains. Shut the gates, keep the change, try time. No talk about rugby, just, just drinks. <laughs> exactly. And then Hive-related news, we're on Amazon Music, which is absolutely huge, whatever that means. We've uh, been accepted into the beta testing, and so the Rugby Hive podcast is on there, plus, of course, a million other platforms where you get your pods. Make sure to catch us on all the socials. We're, of course, very active there at Rugby Hive on Twitter and Facebook, at MyRugbyHive on Insta. Another sensational episode awaits. Time now for episode number 12. Very special guest today. Joining us is Brownie. Such a delight to have you on with us, my friend. Cheers, mate. Tell us, man, how are you and your family managing during this time? Uh, yeah, we're pretty good. It's a little, we've got a, a four-bedroom house in San Diego. It uh, doesn't have a backyard. It's uh, big enough to, that we've uh, been able to mess the whole thing up, and, uh, but at least it's a bit of a playground for the kids. And we're in San Diego, so you know, 75 degrees ain't bad most of the time, so we can get out in the battle a little bit. I was going to say, you're definitely on the right, on the right coast for weather-wise. You're in a better situation than Alev Kalta. We had her on here recently, and she said she was living with her sister and 14 chickens and, and a few other animals, so it was a bit cramped there. I guess it comes down to the choices you make, yeah? Exactly. Brownie, listen, as we do with all our other legends on here, let's delve a bit into your background. Tell us uh, where you grew up and, and a little bit about your childhood. Yeah, cool, mate. Look, um, born and bred in Taranaki, New Zealand. Um, so, yeah, Kiwi through and through. Getting close to uh, actually meeting the halfway point. Well, actually, still, I've still got about six or seven years to go. But, uh, yeah, born and bred in Taranaki and uh, ended up traveling uh, over to South Africa and, and working there for four years and, and then a couple of years up north north in Africa and Namibia and Kenya and so that was straight out of school etc and, and my wife's African so I better throw that out there and uh, after spending some time in South Africa I said that uh, I was definitely going to be marrying a, an Afrikaans girl. How is your Afrikaans? Uh, in Afrikaans you know so uh, yeah no my, um, I was much better when I was living in Namibia. Uh, that was my third year over there and, and I was actually translating for the two English consultancy coaches that we had at the time. Unfortunately, a lot of the Afrikaans does have a few English words, especially when you're in the rugby circuit. Brilliant. Spent a bit of time in the UK playing um, back in the day, but I was pretty young finishing up playing at 22. And then, uh, yeah, got the opportunities through South Africa, which is uh, why I'm so fond of that country as a whole. And what were some of your sports growing up that you loved, other than rugby? Well, I was watching um, The Last Dance last night, brought me back to my, my heyday at high school, and I was the first five captain. We had 10 teams in the conference, and we were last, but I was still the captain, and uh, <laughs> I was a point guard, and uh, we actually did beat the number one team in the conference, though, because they had an illegal player, so uh, they got disqualified, and we managed to get that first victory of the season, which was great. And then uh, we, also my background, I played state tennis. Tennis was probably my, uh, I, I love rugby, my dad was passionate about rugby, but tennis was probably the one thing where I'm like, should I have continued on in that? And, and being five foot seven and, uh, you know, not the biggest, but I was pretty quick around the court and, uh, and, and did relatively well at, 
at state level. And um, but I, I recognise very early on that in New Zealand, very it's very rare that a tennis player comes out and goes very far and very isolated compared to having a, a team to work with. So, but uh, yeah, tennis and, and a bit of basketball through high school uh, were my other sports. And and did you pursue playing rugby at a higher level once you once you graduated from high school? I started playing premier club rugby in New Zealand. So how, how it works is, uh, you know, straight out of high school, you go into, say, the club rugby setting, and then there's the, and in that there's the academy set up, and then it's a stepping stone to, stone to ITM Cup, then Super Rugby, then the All Blacks. And so I was still at high school playing in the premier club competition, and things were going uh, pretty well. And then I had a, a few niggly injuries over the next three years, which ultimately just got me a little bit fearful towards the contact point. And, and uh, I mean, I was, I was in the Hurricane Schools Academy and played in the, uh, what's it called, the provincial uh, ITM Cup age group teams. But realistically, um, once you fall out of love with contact, you kind of start to look for alternative options. And, um, and uh, so it kind of meant that, uh, all right, well, I got an opportunity to go coach in South Africa. I thought that would be good for my mind and, and, and to be able to, um, to kind of refresh and then and fall in love with it again. And, uh, and I never really returned to it. You always back yourself. You think, oh, what if, what if? But realistically, I didn't have access to the old mental skills coaches that we have now. And, uh, and that, was a, that was a big hiccup for me was the, the fear of failure. And, and also, um, so, you know, and that led into that mindset towards contact in the end when I was still playing. So. And, and Brownie, you mentioned, did you, did you finish high school or did you, did you goose step out of there? Oh, mate, I goose stepped out of there. So, uh, <laughs> no, I actually left high school. Um, I don't know what it's in America, but in New Zealand, it's, uh, we talk about seventh form or year 13. So I actually left high school in the, the middle of year 12. We, um, at the end of year 11, so third, I was only 15, I was like, oh, I've had enough of this. I wasn't doing so well, and uh, I'm going to go start an apprenticeship. I'm going to play for the All Blacks, you know, and uh, I'm going to start the process. Two months into the apprenticeship over the summer, before, uh, you know, over the summer when school's off, I re- very quickly realized that I didn't want to work as hard as what the builders and the, the tradesmen did. So I, uh, I, didn't, I didn't leave school officially, and I signed back up, and I worked really hard for about two months. And then the uh, provincial tennis or rugby season, and then the tennis season after that took over, and uh, put it this way, I, I was. I wasn't, I wasn't doing so well and, and uh, there was a Spanish exchange student actually who made me stick around for an extra couple of months. Well, not made me, but I chose to. As soon as she left school, then um, it was time for me to move on, you know. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, look, I, um, I ended up doing a community college diploma for two years, which got me university entrance and then I went off to university after that. So, did a little bit differently than the old uh, conventional route. Yes, exactly. Now, tell us what age did you go to South Africa? You mentioned your coaching. So, I want to get into how you switched over from your interest into coaching and then how did you end up in the US with, with my product? So, the, the community college that I went to, they had a South African guy that set up the program. It was a sports development program and uh, and he went back to South Africa to the head of conditioning and physical performance at one of the top academies in South Africa called uh, the Puka Rugby Institute. Now, once I'd finished there and gone off on to university and finished my degree, he had actually moved on to the Cheetahs, but they wanted somebody that they just built this program at the Puka Rugby Institute and they wanted to, they didn't want an experienced person coming in and trying to change it with all their ideas and everything. So out of the blue, I got given an opportunity to go over and run this program and really just implement something that had already been built. And uh, But that was a that was a starting point of uh, transferring over to coaching and it was purely conditioned with a little bit of 
catch pass and kicking coaching on the side. Um, but that was my starting point, mate. So I finished in South Africa, went to Namibia for the 15s team. Then I went to Kenya with uh, Mike Friday, brought me in. We didn't know each other. It was just he was looking for somebody that knew Africa uh, or had some experience working with the diversity there and, and was willing to be located there. And so, yeah, so that, that happened. And then um, two years later, Mike got approached by a USA rugby and he asked me if I was willing to come along with him to try and do something similar to what we'd done with the Kenyan side. And so that we, we jumped at it. Not many people actually know this, but I'd actually, I was a day away from signing a contract with a Brazilian rugby union to go and, uh, and lead their, uh, sorry, be the assistant coach and, and lead their program in to the, uh, to the Olympics, obviously, in Rio, uh, within the Argentinian at the time. And, uh, but they, they put it off, put it off like by about two and a half, three months it took to actually get the final paperwork. And the day before we got the paperwork, Nigel Melville actually rung me. Uh, and six weeks later, we were in the States. So so that led to that. And then, um, yeah, obviously, uh, regarding how we... And can you describe how your coaching group was able to take the U.S. men's program from 13 to 6 in such a short amount of time? We, we ultimately just had to, and, and Mike will say this, ultimately it was his program. He was, the, he was the brains behind it all. And my job was to be on the ground and just manage it while he, when he wasn't in country, because ultimately all the rugby strategy stuff was all his, you know, with regards to the physical performance, which was uh, a big part of my background. It was my responsibility and aligning that to how he wanted to play. And then, you know, making sure that the, we, we empowered and developed the players within a set of boundaries and, a, and a, a, I guess um, for them to grow as rugby players and as young men and having some direction initially, core values and, and some, uh, again, as I say, uh, and Mike always refers to the, the so-called boundaries to allow the boys to, to flourish and uh, to maximise how they progress and develop was, was the first thing that we did. And I remember one of the things we came into over the first couple of months and recognised how disjointed the team was and how there was heaps of little silos and very little conversations, a lot of phone time, even back then, mate, you know, uh, six, seven years ago. But as we started to really implement kind of a hard work mentality and, and we started to see the fight for each other start to develop and that was only going to develop once the conversation started and the empathy towards each other started and, and, and a lot of that was done through uh, uh, what Mike would say was the yakky yards and then confidence coming out of the unity we started to see on the pitch with us all being on the same page with the frameworks and the systems that we employed. You know? How did you guys overcome the hurdle? Because... I know being a Canadian playing for Canada and obviously following Canada and U.S. my whole life, building that winning culture because, you know, the U.S. is the ingredients for a while. I think you guys are doing, have done an even greater job, obviously, since Mike's taken over of, of finding those, those diamonds in the rough and obviously a lot of systems, but it's that building that belief that whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. When did they figure out that, you know what, we can compete with the best? I'm going to refer to Kenya and the, the U.S. here because what was very apparent in the, in the Kenyan setup, there was such a desire to learn and grow and develop. And we had so many uh, challenges off pitch outside of the players group. In America, what was promised to us initially was agreed upon. It was much easier to work and understand this is what we've got to work with. And, you know, obviously I, I don't have as much knowledge or detail because I wasn't the head of the program. Mike was there. But uh, with regard, it was pretty, especially with Mags um, or Alex Magleby having a, you know, a real positive effect on the direction of the programs and, and the support there was the Golden Eagles and, but also just the structures, etc. And uh, we had a, a bit of a, you know, a real hard, a heart to heart 
post uh, Dubai and uh, Port Elizabeth at the time where things worked, that there was a little bit more rebellious nature in this group. And only because we were asking a lot of old players to change. Players that had been through two or three coaches uh, that were in their late 20s, etc., to, to change when they'd already been asked to change on multiple occasions. But you can look at like Danny Barrett, you look how far he's come and how influential he's been over the last six years. He was one of the ones that we had a lot of push and shove and give and take, uh, not literally, but in the sense of uh, moulding um, the programme and moulding him and, and us adapting as well. And um, and I know that him and Mike have a very, very close relationship. And uh, But again, we had to go through those growing pains. And the same with Falau. And, and I guess Madison Hughes had a huge effect to play on it because as the youngest in the squad at the time, he was very much a mediator that connected all the pieces to the puzzle and even at 23 years old and we started to see some momentum building as we as we built into that that London tournament at the end which we took away uh, we just started to see some milestones achieved and, and, and started to you know get a victory over England push the Kiwis right to the very end you know the Fijians played them three or four times in a row and, and we, we were only just missing missing the mark etc so but then when we got that we saw more and more, the more we played together and and, uh, and really stuck to the frameworks or the systems of, of a, the, the approach that Mike had, and we saw our, our core skills going through the roof and that we were physically able to go to dark places and function there. It took us about nine months to even be set up to be successful. And, you know, nine months or a season is not a long time, but I think we were very, very fortunate to be able to experience that, and, and that was in the Olympic qualification year, you know. Yeah, it certainly was uh, so impressive to watch, and as a new American, if you will, fantastic to see. In our era, we only got to the semifinals. That was the, the furthest we progressed, in, but that was 2009, you know. But again, we did step Robin and, and get past him, so that was nice at least. <laughs> Tell us about that first series title ever, the one you mentioned in London in 2015. Can you describe that weekend to us? Yeah, I guess the unreal part of it was, as it finished up, was we had the Aussies, and we played the English, obviously, there as well, And but then the sense of they had the Aussies in the final, and just, uh, it was almost like the group just went to another level. The, the, we'd seen all these frameworks that would be, the framework that we were working on in attack, and, and our just defensive systems, we'd seen glimpses and moments of consistency in training, but not to the level that we experienced over that final day in London and then to see the almost like the ruthlessness that we put the Aussies to the sword and you know you've got a 105 kilogram Danny Barrett um, or 230 pound Danny Barrett stepping in line breaking at 60 meters out and running uh, running 60 to score while he put somebody into the coffin on the way down you know and uh, so I, I think it was again it, we unfortunately didn't have this experience with the Kenyans we missed that first opportunity to win a tournament with them but we definitely did with the men and, and obviously Mike's had a lot more success in recent years and, and us with the women of late getting that, that first victory and then, you know, it's um it's a kind of a, a real, it's a, such an emotional rollercoaster being on the series as both of you guys know uh, and it's like, it's just it's just little things that are missing that let, that stop you from transferring through the next step and, and you women could have four, four brilliant games and then one where you're just slightly off or, or, uh, or you know, et cetera, et cetera, through a tournament. Or you could have three poor games uh, out of six, but you still get to the quarterfinals and, and you, you, you manage to scrape through. And I think the big thing for us in, in London was that we it was a tournament where we just built and built and built. And, and it was the same as when we won the first Las Vegas one. It was a progressive step up every tournament. It wasn't kind of like, oh, we're lucky to get through there, etc. And then hit or miss. It was, that's what you want as a coach, don't you? It's from minute one, you just want to, refine and get better and better and better as the tournament goes on and uh, and all going well that you're starting at a level from game one that doesn't leave you going man crap we've lost that one etc we're already at a standard that 
we can build off and, and, and propel ourselves forward. You know? And then, Brownie, your, your journey, you then move across to the women's side of it, uh, the fall of 2018. Tell us about that transition. Pretty, pretty special in many ways. Look, I mean, I'd, um, you know, I was really privileged to, to, be, to, to work under a few different coaches. Um, Matt Prowford, who's now the forward coach for the English, was with the Springboks when they won the World Cup last year. He was a head coach at the Rugby Institute, and, and his eye for detail and the level of detail that he'd go into and how he unified a group was so player-focused. was was pretty special to be a part of and to see from, in the sense of my first coaching opportunity. And then obviously Mike Friday was, is renowned and, and was renowned back then in the sense of being able to transform teams and uh, being somebody that would fight for every inch for his players and being very, very loyal to his people that he works with and, uh, and, and, and seeing a lot of the attributes that ultimately lead to why how I coach today was a, a real privilege. And when I got to come across the women's side and, and I guess implement some of the, the things and, and, and learn some of the, the aspects of what comes with a lead role. And I think I, had, I was really fortunate that Mike delegated a lot to me. And what I mean by that, gave me the opportunity with the resident program when he wasn't permanently on the ground to, to learn some of the day-to-day management players and without having to make any serious decisions because ultimately that was his job and he coached his job. And stepping over to the women's, that's where I had to really step up, ultimately take responsibility for the whole program. And what was really special was, again, like with the Kenyans, they were so hungry to learn and to progress and to grow. And they was they were at a point, you know, the Kenyan team, they had seven or eight guys that had been there for four or five years. Same was this, the US women's team. They'd had enough of where they were and had been, and, and it was they wanted change and they wanted... And what I mean by that, in many ways, what they want to change in was, yes, they want a clear direction, but they also wanted a place where they enjoy coming to work. Emily Bywell was absolutely brilliant, helping foster and develop culture that the guilds ultimately said what they wanted to represent, and we just we helped guide it and refine it. And then um, that was a pretty special process to go through, and it's probably been the most rewarding, as, as you know, the majority of the time, these athletes love coming to work now, um, no matter how hard it can be to function daily in a high-performance environment. Well, the program from the outside looks very, very positive. Obviously, the results have spoke for themselves the last few years, and but they just seem to be smiling a whole heck of a lot. And I know seeing them perform at the Sevens World Cup right before you took over, you could see building. You know, there's a difference between tense and intense, and um, they seem tense before, and now it's definitely intense when they're playing. So well done to you and your staff. And just transitioning to more of the couple specific areas that you wanted to work on when you took over both skill execution and situational awareness. How did you implement that into your program? Yeah, great point, mate. It's, um, I inherited a group of athletes that even from the, you know, through Richie Walker and Jules McCoy and, and uh, Rick Suggett. If anyone's met uh, Rick, unfortunately he's passed on now. But definitely big personality, big character. And, uh, and, uh, and a lot of these girls have uh, fond memories of their experiences uh, from back in 2014, 2013 uh, with him. And uh, so I inherited a, a group of athletes that they were a group of athletes. And we recognized that their core skills had developed, but and, and they knew what they wanted to try and do based off the strategies that previous coaches had tried to implement. And um, But I think that the biggest thing was, as I said, about the cultural side of things to a point where they would die trying for each other and they would die uh, or they would sacrifice a lot to um, to spend the time needed to to hone the, the skills and, and do the purposeful conditioning that they needed to do to be able to play their role within the system and the team. So we spent a lot of time around the contact point and around the catch pass, distribute, uh, you know, and, and understanding how to hesitate the fences and keep spaces open when we see the best space to play to, but it's two, three seconds before it even gets there. How do we keep that space if we want it or um, how do we adapt and adjust when... Um, so picture reading, decision-making, 
all the cliche things that people say, but just re repetition, repetition, where it's not the same picture the whole time. At times it was the same picture that would just repeat, and then it's showing four or five different pictures that they would see, and then be, seeing how quickly they could recognise and play their role with whatever that uh, whatever their role was right then within our framework or our attacking framework. So, I mean, that was uh, a huge emphasis from minute one, but I, it's obviously the first team that I've taken over. But you'll see, and you've all heard about how defences wins championships, and I, uh, the, the first thing was, I was like, well, no matter how powerful or how athletic or the individual skill sets that we have to be able to exploit and score, we want to make sure that we're in control as much as possible and we need to be consistent in an element to really take confidence in. And, and uh, they already had a relatively good restart aerial team all the left counters and Nicole Hevelin's restarts and, and, and a lot of the jumpers Abby Gostaitis and Jordan Gray and Chita Umba we didn't have was a, a group of individuals defending together so we just prioritised that for the first three four months and really drove that into the ground in many ways we didn't really see the rewards we, we saw our defensive um, the amount of points scored against us just drop through all six events over that first season and uh, in the last two events we we, find, we saw those the, the stretch KPIs that we had to the point where we were the number one defensive team on the series through the last three events, which was pretty special to achieve, considering that's still going to be the thing that gives us the best chance of winning gold next year. Yeah, your first season as head coach, most successful in the history of uh, Eagles, Sevens, uh, placing second in 2019. We talked a bit about it, but what do you do to summarise overall your pillars of success for that season? Uh, we, we talk about our culture, we talk about our, our physical preparation, Matt Long, Nicole Titmus, uh, and the number of interns that have come through the, the program. You have 25 athletes with one physio and one conditioning coach. And in a full-time environment, that there's a lot of work that goes into that. They're the people that spend the most time on the pitch because they have to be there and they have to prime and make sure that we're doing what we need to do from a match intensity and, and a game strategy priority standpoint. Uh, but then, you know, you've got all the individual and, and, and a lot of the power and, and speed production work that they have to do outside of that. And so I'm very fortunate that I've got two people that are top quality in their fields and, and more importantly, that they're, they're very much givers and they go far, they go beyond and nothing's ever an issue. So that's one of our pillars is, is the, the physical preparation that's gone through the roof in the last two years then we look at our rugby side of things which you've just heard the core skills and the defensive structure how we talk through our defense in the sense of our actions you know show how unified and, and what our desire and our, and our I guess how tight we are as a, as a group and then three it's the culture it's the it's it's creating that a stand of execution with a, an environment which players feel safe and to express themselves and be vulnerable and be willing to get it wrong and to keep growing forward. And um, so, I mean, those have been the three biggest things that we've emphasized. And uh, But alongside that, I guess the underlying thing is, is the trust that the players gave me. The tr players gave me day one to come in with, uh, and, and Nicole came, she'd been there previously for a number of years and she came back on board, asked her, if, or Emily Bywell asked her if she would come back on board. And I was very grateful that she was willing to. And, uh, and Matt had just started recently building into that World Cup with them. And so, you know, the trust that they've shown towards the, the three of us, as well as the additional staff, um, and and buy him what uh, was absolutely huge and um, going back to what I said about the the American players being asked to change the men's being asked to change multiple times through most multiple coaches, these girls were willing to and and they've been through what one two three four coaches in the space of 
or three seasons. So they they were being asked to do a lot, and um, and it says a lot about the character of individual that I work with currently. All smart coaches surround themselves by a, a better team or a, an excellent staff, and uh, it's all about working smart. And you know, it's it's great to get the athletes to buy in, but definitely using the resources that you already had in place is is gold. And uh, I know Nicole and the rest of your staff are world class. That's uh, that's special to hear. Yeah, cheers, man. I definitely definitely are, and um, I'm glad that. Um, We've obviously got a, a few things to still sort out the union at the moment, but we're, we're finding a way forward, and um, I'm very hopeful that we'll be able to get at least our uh, our core staff back together to strive forward and, and, and see what we can achieve in this year ahead. Let's rewind it back, though, to that World Rugby event, honouring yourself as uh, Coach of the Year for the Women's Series. Mike Friday on the podium as well, Coach the the Men's Series. What was it like for you two to be up there to receive that award? No one American had ever even been nominated. Well, um, they, they um, the unfortunate thing in the sense of the how and played I had to shift the women's tournament about two months before it happened they shifted us two weeks later to the south of france or the southwest or of france and it was beautiful down there but uh yeah obviously two weeks earlier mike won that award and uh and a number of players were honored um steve thomason ben pinkman danny barrett you know uh previously perry baker's obviously been honored as and even carlin isles winning a couple of the most points scored at trophies now it was pretty special i mean i didn't even realize that they had one of those awards until I saw Mike, you know, receive it. And uh, that's credit where credit's due is uh, he's, he's gone along, he, he's gone through a lot, really sacrificed a lot to, to be able to help that group of men achieve what they've achieved. And uh, for me to be able to, I suppose, a pretty uh, special year, be topped off with some acknowledgement from World Rugby uh, or from the, you know, the, the World Series, etc., was pretty special. And, and I think what really summed it up was that if we look back through the stats of that year one and, and recognising, more importantly, rather than just myself, how the squad played such a role, not just individual characters, we didn't have one player uh, in the top five of any statistics in that year one with regards to involvements, tackles, blimmin', tries scored, points scored, not one. That shows how much of a team effort it was that us progressing to number two in the world. Ultimately, in the last three events, we had the best success rate defensively and also when it comes to outcomes. But the Kiwis obviously just smashed us a little bit too hard earlier on in the season. But I just I just love how that summed up the, the power and unity and, and what you can achieve, even if you don't have the so-called, um, and we've got a number of quality, quality rugby players. But in the sense of in that season, the stats showed that it was a, it was a unified performance, uh, which was pretty special. And as a World Rugby commentator, I get a chance to vote on the different categories. It's very easy voting for you as coach for the year of the year because of what you've done with the side. So I know you're a humble bloke, but I just want to say it was, it was an honor voting for you. I'm glad you won. <laughs> Cheers, mate. I got the trophy down the, the uh, fountain. My, my wife's already stuck it in the blooming cupboard. <laughs> yeah, they get sick of those after a while. That's that's your problem for being successful. Now, that's a huge accomplishment, especially after your first year. As far as setting yourself up for success, what would have been an Olympic buildup? How does that look uh, with another year of preparation going into 2021? And, and what's what's your team's view on that? Are you using it as an opportunity or does it set you back with your team's peaking? No, we're, look, we've got a young side. We've got a pretty young side. If you look at, I mean, for us to range between 29 and 18, <laughs> 
you know, if, if this was 2024 and they pushed off a year, then it probably would have been like, oh, here we go. Just because of, you know, age in general and, 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 and what you've been going through and building up to and a lot of your planning. But for us to get an extra year, um, I, I'm really excited. It was pretty guttering to start off with. And I know a number of the girls, it really hurt them. And uh, But then, of course, there's the ones that feel now that they have a little bit more time to challenge and compete. And, uh, and that's only good for bringing internal competition. And, and then there's the ones that, also, you know, in the sense of from what I'm hearing from the group and our discussions that we've had is uh, that they're seeing the positives, they're optimistic in the sense of, look, ultimately, um, you know, we all get to choose how we see things. And you can choose to get caught up and, and, and focus on the negatives. And, um, and one of the big uh, themes that we've been the whole time through is control what we can control. You know, there's no complaining in the sense of if you've got an issue. Have you got a solution? If you've got a solution, go to the people that can solve it. That's a big part of how we try to live by. And uh, for us, recognising that this last nine months have been a tough nine months for us and uh, uh, all the second season and, and a lot of learnings. And, and speaking to my friends who are in Super Rugby, every second year they said, especially after you start the new programme, you, you start to experience little cracks and, and little things that you have to address and identify and it makes you stronger long term, but you've got to go through it. And, and one of those things, uh, you know, that's what we experienced through the last two tournaments uh, of this season. And it really, you know, we had addressed and, and worked through things and, and really got to the heart, you know, the hardest things, and uh, it was exciting. We were we were training really well for the last three weeks before the COVID uh, nineteen virus. So it is frustrating and disappointed, disappointing because I think we were exactly where we needed to be to catapult into the Olympics. And going through some tough stuff made us really look at us uh, ourselves and make sure that we knew where we didn't want to go again and what caused certain things. And uh, and the players were leading that ownership, but with another whole year to go in, I, I think. No, it's uh, absolutely perfect for us uh, as long as we can get back to training pretty soon. That's a great outlook. And we all know how competitive the World Series is. And this year sees the U.S. drop to fifth place overall. So as far as we'll go, this season's done. But can you give us some insight, just the roller coaster and how hard it is day in, day out for those athletes to compete? Yeah, very much so, mate. It's, um, as, as I shared over year one, year one we were defensive orientated in the sense of what our priority was to get in order. We set a very simplistic attacking framework in play. And I'm all about simplistic clarity and clear direction. And then the power of unity getting you where you're going, you know. And uh, I feel that the, the challenge for us coming into year two, too was not the worst thing I mean it was great confirmation that we were doing the right things uh, but you look at Glendale and we come out and we win that event so we've just done four events in a row that we're pretty damn happy with from Kitty Kishu in, uh, in March the previous season uh, all the way through to now just winning Glendale our, third, our home tournament and I think what come with that was it would have happened in a way but I think what happened was like a little bit more of a kind of um, we ended up in a bit of a bane culture uh, and, and very briefly, like just in the sense of, and, and what I mean by that is it's like, okay, why aren't you doing this? You should be doing this because now we know what we should be doing. People should be doing, if they're not, rather than it be, okay, I'm going to do anything I possibly can to make it easier for my teammate. It suddenly become, a, it was only just surfacing, etc. But when you play a sport where you've only got seven people on that pitch and it's so critical that you're all on the same page and you're fighting for each other, we just started to see little things creeping in that led to that in the end. And, and the girls, I mean, they took, they identified it, they took it on. And I mean, as I say, that last month coming out, we were on fire. But I think one of the things also that when I look back and I take ownership for myself is I allowed us to get too far away from what we're good at. 
uh, and remembering what we're good at and focusing on us because ultimately that's what we can control most of. And the frameworks and the systems that we play, uh, systems that they're, they're stretching, they're stretching systems. We're, we're so far off doing them perfectly, which means that you know, no matter what the opposition does and how they adapt and change, I believe our systems or our frameworks that we play within that allow us to implement certain strategies are a huge stretch uh, from where we are now to us being perfect. So instead of getting caught up in what's going to happen or what could change and what opposition are going to do, yes, we need to be aware of that and we need to understand how what we do as a a default, as a norm, combats that, but also do we need to make slight adjustments here or there, et cetera. But I just feel like we got caught up as a coaching crew a little bit too much on on the what-ifs and and the opposition and and the future rather than being in the moment and trusting our our systems and our approaches, continuing to enhance ourselves and and focusing on our strengths would lead to that ultimate success that we're looking at. It's been a good reflection thing, but a pretty harsh one to have to go through myself, you know. I was going to say, very honest reflection and uh, taking what part you played in, you know. So final question for on this side for the Rugby Hive listeners, how would you describe your coaching philosophy? First and foremost, you got uh, this, this is cool and uh, actually comes from the, uh, the church that I, that I attend or go to. They talk about developing people. It's all about connecting, developing, empowering. And it's something that I've taken on for, you know, since I, a number of years since I've been there. It's, it's all about how I can connect to the individual so that, you know, I gain their trust and, and I gain their belief and, and understand them better. Then it's the, yeah, it's the skill sets and it's understanding what they need. And then it's creating the, the room for them to flourish, the room for them to, to, to be empowered and take ownership and lead. And, you know, that's part of a process. And I think, again, coming back to the question about the additional year, I think we're just in a perfect position to be able to really catapult into that last principle of coaching or, or the principle I live by or coach by, creating more empowerment and, and, and more ownership within the group of players. Well, Brownie, it's uh, been an absolute privilege to speak to you and we really can't wait for 2021, of course. I know you're chopping to go there. Brilliant to have the 2019 World Rugby Women's Sevens Coach on the, on the Rugby Hive. Robin Dallin, great, uh, thank you very much for the invitation. It's been great to um, connect with you. And uh, yeah, looking forward to listening to the rest of your uh, podcasts and the interviews that you, do, you guys are doing. So cheers. Eh? You want to hit that in Afrikaans as well? Uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, I'm a one. Uh, you're, you're, you're Blixem. All right. Bye, Donkey, my friend. Thank you so much. Beautiful ball over the top. Yes, Seppo! Thank you for listening, you sleek sensations. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Rugby Hive Podcast and catch us on all the socials at Rugby Hive. We appreciate your support. Be safe out there and we'll see you soon. They've taken a lunch money from Sunday.